0: Pepperidge Farm Milano.
1: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com Hello, everybody.
2: Today's episode is our East Coast show from our recent tour. This is one that we recorded at the Arts at the Armory in Somerville, Massachusetts. So
0: let's hop right into
2: it. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Anne Royal. And while she was living, Anne Newport Royal was a very well-known, even notorious public figure. She was a travel writer, and she was a muckraking journalist way before Theodore Roosevelt coined that term, at a time when there really were not a lot of women being travel writers or journalists at all. And she made such a name for herself that by the time she was put on trial for being a common scold We're going to talk about that today. Uh, That was national news, the common scold trial of Anne Royal. At the same time, she was really divisive and complicated and and imperfect and just messy. And the longer I worked on this podcast, the more mess I found. So today we're going to do our best to celebrate the things about her that were awesome, which there are several, and also not shy away from the parts that were not, which we're mostly calling the unfortunate racism portion of the program.
0: It always lurks. Uh, <laughs> but she was born in Newport on June 11th of 1769, outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And her father, William, was actually rumored to be an illegitimate descendant of the Calvert family, as in George Calvert, first Baron Baltimore, whose son was the city's namesake.
2: William moved the family out to the frontier of western Pennsylvania in 1772. And before he died around 1775, he taught Anne to read phonetically. And this might be part of why later on she was really interested in documenting the accents and the dialects of the people that she met in her travels and then
0: writing them down, sort of rendering them phonetically in her books. And after William Newport died, Anne's mother, Mary, remarried a man from Hannahstown, Pennsylvania. And on July 13, 1782, after the British surrendered at Yorktown, but before the Treaty of Paris formally ended the Revolutionary War, Hannah's town was attacked, and it was burned by the Seneca Nation and their British allies. And Anne's stepfather also died right around this time, and the surviving family fled to what is now West Virginia, but at the time this happened, it was still just part of Virginia. An
2: even more dramatic version of this story got passed around later on in Anne's life and after her death. It was not true. It was also not something she said was true. People just sort of glommed onto it. This was that Anne herself had been captured by the native force and was held prisoner until a very brave American army captain came and rescued her and that they later got married. Not true,
0: (laughs) at all. on November 18, 1797, when Anne was 28, she did get married. This was to Captain William Royal. He was about 20 years her senior, and he was a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He had served under the Marquis de Lafayette, and William was part of the area's wealthier class. He had a large estate, and an enslaved workforce. Uh, and in a lot of accounts, Anne and William actually met because Anne's mother was working as a domestic in his home, but that is not entirely clear whether that's true or not.
2: So every time we've done this show so far, when you've gotten to the end of the sentence about the Marquis de Lafayette, you've taken a little breath, uh-huh. and I every time I'm just expecting someone in the audience to spontaneously burst into Hamilton.
0: I'm giving yeah. them a moment.
2: <laughs> I'm like, here's your shot. Here's your shot. Yeah. (laughs) So it was not clear whether Anne's mother really did work as a domestic in his household, but what was clear is that Anne and William cohabitated for quite some time before they got married, like maybe a decade. (laughs) This, of course, was scandalous. Neighbors and William's family considered Anne to just be an indigent woman of very questionable morals uh, they spread some rumors that William had just been keeping her as his concubine and that he hadn't ever intended to marry her. Some of them said that he had not married her at all. There was a marriage certificate. They definitely got married, but they, the people had a vendetta against Anne Royal.
0: Yeah, so they did get married, and they were married for the next 15 years. And during that time, William and Anne read together all the time, which is sort of romantic and charming. Uh, They especially read classic works of literature and the work of Enlightenment thinkers. And this really bolstered Anne's education because prior to that, really, she had just had a very brief time in a log cabin school in Pennsylvania in terms of formal learning. And this also really influenced her social and political attitudes because she and William would always discuss whatever it was they were reading. And she tended to just pick up on his opinions.
2: Anne assumed more and more responsibility for managing their home and their farm as their marriage moved on because William developed a problem with alcohol. And this didn't have the kind of stigma that it might today at the time. Because for an affluent Southern man, drink was a part of life, and drunkenness was a sign of masculinity. But for Ma- for Anne, it made her life a lot harder. Number one, she was having to do a lot of his work that he could not do because he was intoxicated. But it was also harder because her neighbors would judge her for being too harsh
0: with him when he was too drunk to get his work done. <laughs> uh. Every time. (laughs) William Royal died in 1813, and with the exception of a small legacy that had been set aside for Anne's niece, he left Anne all of his property. And she ultimately became the sole executor of his estate, which meant that it was up to her to manage all of William's affairs after he had died. And this included running their home and household and also managing that enslaved workforce that she had inherited.
2: So this is a good time to take a moment to note some of Anne's attitudes. In a lot of ways, she was a woman who was way ahead of her time, but not when it really came to slavery or race. At the same time, her opinions on those subjects were really full of contradictions. She called slavery a curse, and she hated the idea of white men fathering children with, their enslaved, with enslaved women who were living on their property and then enslaving those children. She really hated that idea. She was also really horrified when she witnessed violence and brutality
0: against enslaved people. But to be clear, there is no flexibility that could allow you to define her as an abolitionist. She thought slavery should be up to the states, and she actually worried that emancipation could really impact white workers in a negative way. And she also very clearly knew that slavery was still slavery, even if someone who enslaved people was considered a good or kind slave owner, but even though she knew that didn't make it any less wrong, she would still make a point to mention how she thought several slave owners were very kind in some of her writing. It's like, you just said,
2: you just said you knew it didn't make it not slavery. So she wasn't ad- like actively advocating for slavery, like a lot of people of her background were, but that is a low bar. <laughs> I don't, that bar is like buried down in there. (laughs) Um, She was similarly contradictory when it came to Native Americans as well. She tended to romanticize Native Americans as a group, but then when she met individual Native people, she often wrote about them in a really stereotypical and sometimes degrading way. She didn't think it was possible for the Native and white populations to live together in the same place, and that was an argument that people were using for removal. But at the same time, she railed against land companies that were defrauding the native population of their land. She praised charitable charitable mission work with the indigenous tribes, but she really decried missionaries' efforts to convert the native population to Christianity. And she absolutely hated it if it seemed like missionaries were trying to extort conversions in exchange for food and supplies. So if you had a charitable mission where you were, you know, providing people with food and and, uh, and supplies and things like that without expecting anything in return, that was fine. But if you were sort of like, if you come to church, we'll have food for you, she did not like that at all.
0: And after William's death, it became really apparent that he had been carrying a lot of debt. And this was compounded by some of Anne's own decisions that she had made while trying to figure out what she was doing with his estate. She ended up selling off parts of his property, including some of that enslaved workforce, but then William's family actually contested the will. They framed Anne and William's relationship as a complete sham and said that she had orchestrated the whole thing just to get William's fortune, and then they said that she had in fact forged the will.
2: So this started a legal battle that went on for six years, and in 1819, a jury annulled the will Although she was still legally entitled to a much smaller financial portion of her late husband's estate, Anne's own debts and her expenses left her with really almost nothing. And at that point, she was 50 years old. This, it was while all of this was going on that she finally decided to leave
0: Virginia, and she started on the path to becoming a travel writer. And travel writing had become a popular genre as the United States had become more established as a nation with roads and steamboats and ways to make it possible for people to go out and travel. Uh, So most travel writers though were men and sometimes they were women, but always traveling with a companion. And the big distinction above anything else is that those people actually had money to do that traveling. Anne, on the other hand, was
2: a woman with no fortune at all traveling alone. The annulment of the will meant that she didn't even have horses or a carriage of her own, so she had to take public modes of transportation like stagecoaches and steamboats. She also had to stay in public houses, and she had to try to fund her room and board through the sale of her books. This would be sort of like if you wanted to be a travel writer, but you didn't have a car or any money, like
0: <laughs> it was not a comfortable way to try to earn a living. Yeah, being a travel writer on spec is rough business. Um, but her approach to selling her books was <laughs> really controversial and is the reason I've been sitting here giggling for a couple minutes. Uh, it was typical for writers of the day to sell their work by subscription. It was, however, not typical for them to sell those subscriptions by going door to door and barging in on people's houses with an aggressive sales pitch. And it was especially not typical for writers to sell these subscriptions by satirizing people who refused to purchase them. But that is exactly how Anne played it. That was her business model. Just stomp right in and say, "I'm gonna write nasty stuff about you. Buy a subscription." Um, and who wouldn't be wooed by that? I know she.
2: She was definitely not the only writer who was doing weird stuff to promote themselves around this time. I mean, Walt Whitman was writing reviews of his own books under fake names and publishing them to be like, the great writer of the United States has arrived. Uh, but that was a lot less confrontational than... Yeah. Less intrusive
0: what? than... Yeah. I see you're eating dinner. Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, people were, I'm at the dinner table
2: now. Would you like to subscribe? Uh, now, whose turn is it?
0: <laughs> you're
2: Okay. I don't know why I lost track of this thing, it's like I've never done this before. So, especially at first this whole barging in on people and demanding they buy books, like this is a weird financial juggling act that was kind of difficult. At various points she made ends meet thanks to the charity of other people and the help of various Masons. Her late husband had been a Mason and had told her that if she needed help, she should go find a Mason. And that advice served her extremely well. Uh, Masons helped her out of a number of jams, and there was also a huge anti-Masonic movement that was going on in the United States at this point, which was really a whole other story, but Anne Royal was very critical of people who criticized the Masons, and so that earned her even more of their support. Another early patron of hers was the Marquis de Lafayette, thanks to her husband's military service under him.
0: Anne's first book was titled Sketches of History, Life, and Manners in the United States* by a traveler, and it was published in New Haven in 1826. And at that point, she had just turned 57. She went on to publish numerous volumes of travel writing, and these included uh, collections of letters to her friend and her lawyer, Matthew Dunbar, from Alabama, and she had written those while her husband's will was in dispute. She also included what, uh, or she also wrote what she called pen portraits, and those were vignettes of noble and semi-noble or semi-notable people. I don't know why. I've now completely lost my ability to say words. Uh, She also wrote a novel. So she started her writing career really late in life, but her hustle was the real deal. She did a lot of work. Yeah, she
2: was prolific, and by the end of her career as a travel writer, Anne Royal had gone pretty much every place you could go in the United States by steamboat or stagecoach. She wrote about all the places that she went and the people that she met, and she often documented their accents and their dialects and their slang. She wrote about what the travel was like getting there, what the roads were like, the
0: weather, all the various things you would expect out of a travel book. And she also wrote about her opinions of what she saw and who she saw and encountered, some of which could be very judgy. Uh, She was especially critical of people who she didn't think were educated, or an even worse sin in her eyes, who didn't care to improve their own level of education. And this uh, also trickled down to communities that didn't try to educate their residents. So if she went into a place like a township that had no school, it was pretty much a guarantee that that place was gonna get a scathing write-up about it. And this was really the start of her work as a political writer. She increasingly commented on the social conditions and political issues that she witnessed while she was out traveling.
2: Anne Royal became really widely known over these years as a travel writer. Sometimes when she arrived in town, she was greeted as a celebrity. She had fans who were eagerly awaiting the next installment of her book. Other times, especially if she'd been really critical of that place the last time she was there, The reception would be just outright hostile. (laughs) Please don't come to our houses anymore. (laughs) Uh, I just sort of imagine them like, "Get the bitch forks!" It's Anne Royal.
0: (laughs) Uh, When her second travel book came out in 1828, the Boston Commercial Gazette wrote, "Quote: Her style is so highly seasoned; her love of country so predominant; she gives so much of local topics, and applies the lash so unsparingly to her enemies." that her books, like her manners, are resistless.
2: (laughs) As she traveled back and forth all over the United States, Anne Royal also went to Washington, D.C. to try to secure a widow's pension. And she started spending more and more of her time there. And that's where that unsparing lash that the Boston Commercial Gazette had noted got her in some real trouble. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting
0: news. and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling, amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Because Anne Royal's late husband had been a veteran in the Revolutionary War, she was at least in theory entitled to a widow's pension. But because of the way the law was written, widows were not automatically granted pensions. They had to petition for them individually to Congress, which is a great use of Congress's time. <laughs> she had to prove that the man in question was a veteran and that she had been married to him and that he had
0: died. And Anne Royal started gathering all of this information in 1808, except for the death part, because her husband was still alive then. Uh, But it was towards the end of his life, and he was obviously getting older and ailing, and she had filed a petition for a pension on his behalf on November 29th of 1812, and she pointed out that he had served for the entirety of the war, he had received no pay, he had paid for all of his own expenses and supplies during the war, and he had paid for things like troop transport. And now that he was elderly and he was in poor health, she really thought that a pension could ease his last years. And this claim was actually rejected on January 1st of 1813. And then all of those records were lost in a fire. So she had to start from scratch and gather everything over again.
2: I feel like this whole story about trying to get a pension for him in his old age really highlights the whole idea that this was a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower with the rich people paying their own way there. Like, it was not even something that was being funded in a lot of ways by any kind of uh, governmental effort. It was like, this guy that has this estate is paying for the troops to move on his own. It's a bizarre idea to me. Anyway, after William's death and the annulment of his will, Anne started petitioning to get a widow's pension and she ran into a problem. They had gotten married in 1797 but the law only allowed pensions for marriages that had happened up until 1794.
0: This is where I suspect she really regretted that whole cohabitation (laughs) decade.
2: (laughs) Probably hadn't been an issue before that, except for the whole family squabble thing. Yeah, and then she's like
0: Uh, She did refile that petition over and over, and she actually started making friends with influential members of the government, hoping that they could kind of speed things along and help her plead her case. And in particular, there was John Quincy Adams, who was at the time Secretary of State. And he agreed to help her. He also took up the cause of pension reform. He subscribed to two of her books. uh, (laughs) And he then introduced her to his wife Louisa, who gave her a shawl. And he also encouraged her to go to Massachusetts and visit his father, which she did.
2: I can't imagine what the meeting of Anne Royal and Abigail Adams would have been like. Yeah. So this brings us to a favorite, but also apocryphal story about Anne Royal and John Quincy Adams after he became president in 1825. I don't know why I almost said 17.
0: Because there's 17s on the page. Uh, So yeah, it's a very fun story, but don't get attached because it is not true. Uh, According to this story though, John Quincy Adams was known to bathe in a tributary of the Potomac River called Tiber Creek every morning. That is actually true, Uh, he was a skinny dipper. Uh, (laughs) Legit, Royal decided, according to this story, that she wanted to be the first woman to interview a president in office, but she was turned away in her requests. And then, having found out about his bathing habits, she went down to the river one morning and she plopped herself down and sat on his clothes uh, and refused to get off of them until he agreed to her terms that he would do an interview with her. And once he did agree to this, because he had no pants, uh, she she got off of all of his stuff and then politely turned away so he could get dressed. So my friend
2: Amy, who is a history teacher, was at our Atlanta show, and she said that one of her students had told her this story. And to paraphrase what Amy said, I think that's bull roar. (laughs) Uh, It is. It is bull roar. Number one. Apart from raising some issues with privacy and consents to a modern year, this is a pretty delightful story about a woman's clever thinking and boldness and determination and sitting on John Quincy Adams clothes. But in the 19th century, it was not any of those things. It was scandalous and disgraceful and a number of retellings of it from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, because it does go pretty far back. They add various details that make both Anne and John Quincy look worse. So one version of the story dating back to 1925 made it so that it wasn't that that Anne Royal sat on his clothing until he agreed to do an interview. It was that she threatened to scream and attract the attention of some fishermen who were nearby and imply that the president had assaulted
0: her. Right. Total smear campaign. Uh, And there are several reasons that we know that this story is apocryphal. So one is that neither of the two people involved in the story ever said anything about it. And another is that John Quincy Adams and Anne Royal already knew each other. And he was publicly polite to her, but privately he criticized her more divisive behavior. He actually called her a virago errant in enchanted armor. And virago comes from the Latin word for woman warriors, but it had come to have a different meaning, which was a loud, overbearing, shrill, and obnoxious woman. And it also is defined as a woman uh, who is courageous and strong, but it was really, at this point in time, used in a pejorative sense as an insult and not to be like, hey, you are very strong. It's like, hey, you're a pain in my neck. Uh, So the whole setup of her being this unknown, scrappy reporter who wanted to seek an audience with the president really just does not reflect what we know their actual relationship to each other was. So the last reason that we know this is apocryphal
2: is that right after it supposedly happened, Anne Royal was put on trial for being a common scold. And if she had literally sat on the President of the United States clothes to force him to interview her, it probably would have come
0: up as evidence. It didn't. So here's what really happened. Uh, Anne Royal had a lot of opinions. She liked to express them very loudly and very stridently and not necessarily in a way that anyone would categorize as ladylike. And we're going to get into the breadth of Anne Royal's strong opinions later. We've already mentioned some, but uh, there are more. There are lots. Uh, But the opinion related to this trial was that Royal was a huge proponent of the separation of church and state.
2: So this was happening during a religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening, and there was a growing movement of evangelism and of trying to elect explicitly Christian candidates to office to try to reform the law to be more specifically Christian. So for example, there was a general union for promoting the observance of the Christian Sabbath that was established in 1828. It was focused on, among other things, ending Sunday mail delivery.
0: And Anne Royal objected. And her issue was not with religion itself. It was with evangelism and religious hypocrisy. She recognized that the United States was a country of many, many religions and thought that the idea of crafting a government just around one of them was tyranny. She also wrote favorably about the idea of Christian charity, but was really, really angry about the fact that there was, for example, an entire organization, as Tracy just mentioned, that was focused on things like ending Sunday mail delivery when it really should have been focused on things like feeding or sheltering the needy or reforming inhumane prisons or making sure that sick people were cared for. She had a she did not like she was like, is this really what you need to be spending your time on? Also, maybe she liked getting packages every day of the week.
2: Yeah. There were also, uh, there were cities where the churches were allowed to put chains across the roads in front of their buildings on Sundays, which in a lot of places completely shut down traffic. you like, you just couldn't go down Main Street because all the churches had chained off the thing. And, and like, there was a big reform movement to make that stop, stop being obstructing all the traffic for everyone because it's Sunday. Uh, And that was another thing that Ann Royal was very much, she was in favor of not chaining off the street in front of the church every Sunday. Um, Royal, she also made enemies with a number of people within this movement. In Burlington, Vermont, she had an incident with a missionary that in her account led to his shoving her down his steps so forcefully that she dislocated an ankle and couldn't walk for six weeks. She had been trying to sell him a book when that happened, (laughs) She also had a running dispute with Presbyterian minister Ezra Stiles Eli, who had been advocating for the creation of a Christian
0: party in politics. And then there was the matter of her neighbors in Washington, D.C. There was a fire engine house near where she lived that had been built with federal money, and it was being used as a Presbyterian meeting house. And Royal thought that a building that had been built with federal dollars should absolutely not be used for a religious purpose. And she made really, 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 really sure that everybody knew how she felt about it. The congregation claimed that she shouted
2: things at them from her windows, sometimes using swear words, She claimed that the congregation's children threw rocks at her house and that some of the adults sat under her windows and prayed for her salvation, which she
0: did not appreciate. (laughs) And the congregation took this matter to the U.S. Circuit Court of the District of Columbia, and after a grand jury returned an indictment on June 1st, 1829, Royal was charged with three offenses. Number one, being, quote, an evil disposed person and a common slanderer. (laughs) Number two, being a common scold. And number three, being, quote, a common brawler and sower of discord. And all three of the charges also nodded to the idea that she was doing all of this bad stuff among, quote, her quiet and honest neighbors. It's still, having now done this
2: show, this is the third time, it still is so bizarre to me that you could just charge somebody with being an evil disposed person. Like that was... A- I'm, I'm so glad you can't do that anymore. I know. <laughs> I would be so arrested. I do not have the money for lawyers. So uh, Royal pleaded not guilty to being a common scold. She demurred on the other two charges. So demur basically means that the defendant doesn't dispute the charge. (laughs) But also, it's not enough to warrant some kind of legal
0: response. So it's sort of like entering a plea of, so what's your point? So those charges of being an evil disposed person and a common slanderer and a common brawler and sower of discord were dropped. And that left Anne Royal on trial for being a common scold in the highly publicized and sometimes very gleefully reported United States versus Royal. So the idea of being a common
2: scold has a very long history in English common law and several former British colonies still had laws about it on the books after the Revolutionary War that had been there since before the war. But it hadn't been widely prosecuted in Britain since the 1770s, and only a handful of people had ever been put on trial for it in North America, including in New York, Pennsylvania, and as should surprise none of you, Massachusetts.
0: (laughs) This was a crime that was apparently only committed by women um, because only women were ever charged and tried for it. Uh, And the only punishment that was outlined for it was ducking, which was being put into a chair that was kind of like a seesaw or a balance and being dunked into a nearby lake or river.
2: So, like being a scold, which was a crime that somehow only women committed Ducking as a punishment was only administered to women because it was only used in cases of scolding or a select few other women-only
0: crimes. This probably sounds, yes, like witches. Um, (laughs) This probably sounds like something really archaic, and it was, even in 1829. Uh, This whole idea of being a common scold was so obsolete and so completely rarely prosecuted at the point that the attorneys at the trial were not even completely sure of what exactly constituted being a common scold. And there was also a line of thought about how if you had been found to be a scold at one time, you were a scold forever, which uh, had a little bit of an upside because once you had been punished, you could then scold with impunity for the rest of your life. (laughs) It's like we can't
2: try her for being a scold again if we already found her to be a scold. How would that work?
0: Um, (laughs) It would be like you're being charged as a scold. Uh huh. Yeah. Again, so what's your point? She's got the scarlet S.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, nobody had a ducking stool. although according to some accounts one was commissioned to be built at the washington navy yard for this purpose uh later on when you are texting somebody about this show you really did mean ducking this time Hmm?
0: there was also the slightly more serious question of whether ducking which was the only punishment for scolding under the law ran afoul of the Eighth Amendment prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. That seems kind of obvious, since number one, back when ducking had been used as a punishment more often, it was not uncommon for the women who were being administered that punishment to drown or just die of shock. And number two, there was no ducking stool anywhere in the United States, so that pretty much fits the unusual category pretty cleanly. (laughs)
2: We're gonna have to build the contraption required to dole out this punishment. That does seem unusual. Mm -hmm. Throughout this trial though, Anne Royal's behavior was described as very respectable and ladylike. Witnesses for the prosecution talked about her shouting at them and using profanity and generally making them feel bad. I know, she hurted their feelings. Witnesses for the the defense talked about how she had always been perfectly cordial to them. Uh, and the defense witnesses included John Eaton, Secretary of War for the newly inaugurated President Andrew Jackson. Jackson himself had also been invited to
0: testify, but he declined. In spite of her perfect princess behavior in court and the witnesses on her behalf, Royal was found guilty. And before sentencing, John Coyle, who was one of the original complainants, came forward with another complaint that a few days earlier, Anne Royal had called him, quote, a hypocritical old scoundrel. (laughs) The very idea. Um, (laughs) And he brought this up as evidence that Royal needed to face a harsh sentence. But Royal claimed that he had come at her first, saying that her time was short, which is obviously a threat. And the judge concluded that these two offenses just canceled each other out. Um, And then he sentenced Anne Royal to a fine of $10 in lieu of ducking, because nobody had the darn stool. Uh, Plus, she had to pay a $250 deposit to secure her good behavior for a year. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, this is sort of like being on probation, but not really. It's like the ultimate swear jar (laughs) in escrow. (laughs) Kind of. So, her fine was paid
2: by two reporters from the Daily National Intelligencer, which is usually framed as solidarity among members of the press, because it was absolutely clear to everyone that this whole trial was not just about the Presbyterian congregation that was meeting at the fire engine house. It was about Anne Royal's poison pen and her many extremely strong opinions that she had been stridently writing about for most of the 1820s. It was a trial that was basically about making Anne Royal shut up.
0: And after being convicted of being a common scold, Anne Royal thought it might be a smart idea to get out of Washington, D.C., but she did not stay gone for very long.
1: 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, The Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of The 27 Club. Season one of The 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of The 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.
2: It does not appear that Anne Royal did anything to cause her to forfeit that $250 for good behavior that she was fined after her conviction for being a common scold. But on December 3rd, 1831, she published the first issue of her new newspaper it was the Paul Pry, and she published that in Washington, D.C., and in addition to publishing other material, the Paul Pry loudly and stridently published Anne Royal's opinions on the political topics of the day, as well as her own reporting about the goings-on in the halls of government, especially when it came to
0: exposing corruption. And the Paul Pry's opening editorial began, quote, our course will be a straightforward one as heretofore. The same firmness which has ever maintained our pen will be continued. To this end, let it be understood that we are of no party. We will neither oppose nor advocate any man for the presidency. The welfare and happiness of our country is our politics. To promote this, we shall oppose and expose all and every species of political evil and religious fraud without fear, favor, or affection. We shall patronize merit of whatsoever country, sect, or politics. We shall advocate the liberty of the press, the liberty of speech, and the liberty of conscience. The enemies of these bulwarks of our common safety, as they have shown none, shall receive no mercy at our hands. So that all sounds pretty great. Uh, But we
2: should make it clear that even though it said right there that the paper had no official political party stance, Royals' own political opinions were very clear in it, and a lot of people thought that the, that the Paul Pry and its successor were Jacksonian papers, even when Anne Royal strongly criticized things that President Andrew Jackson was doing when she didn't
0: agree with him. And the Paul Pry's quality was variable, <laughs> uh, to be very kind about it. She was printing it at home on an antique press, and she was using a hand-me-down typeface. And when we say hand-me-down, that is not in any way a joke, and it really doesn't cover how intensely hand-me-down the situation was. Um, Duff Green, who worked at the United States Telegraph, which was another paper, not the Telegraph office, uh, had asked his staff to gather up all of their discarded letters to give to her, and that is what she was using. So she was basically printing things that looked like the cut-out ransom notes that you would get. (laughs) Except she was just cranking them out on her home press. And on top of this highly erratic quality of the print, the writing was not especially polished either. But she got about 100 subscribers with two orphans that uh, were helping her make the deliveries. Uh, Maybe not surprisingly considering this whole thing with like the not
2: very polished prose and the serial killer writing (laughs) and uh, orphans. Uh, She couldn't really get the Paul Pry to turn a profit, and the name was part of the problem because Paul Pry made it sound like it was a gossip rag instead of something that offered some serious journalism. So she shut it down on November 19th, 1836, and on December 2nd, just a couple of weeks later, she published the first issue of her new newspaper, The Huntress, which she chose, yes, she chose the name to more clearly reflect a, a, a connection to the editor of the paper, which was Anne Royal. And since at this point, she had five years of experience under her belt, she was no longer like just deciding she was going to have a political newspaper. Uh, the, the Huntress was a much stronger paper than the Paul Pry had been
0: And as she had done with the Paul Pry, while she was publishing The Huntress, Anne Royal personally walked the halls of government, meeting with legislators and interrogating them about their positions and what they were doing. And she met and spoke with every president who served during her time as a journalist in the Capitol. And she made such a name for herself with her dogged pursuit of stories that when she entered a room, a lot of the time men who had been targets of her criticism would just get up and roll out. (laughs) like, adios muchachos, Um, the Senate doorkeeper who was named Isaac Bassett described her as, quote, homely in person, careless in dress, poor in purse, and vulgar in manners. But, he also said, she had much shrewdness and respectable talents. Royal
2: published The Huntress until July 24th, 1854. She kept it up after Congress passed a new law in 1848 that gave Revolutionary War widows who were married before January 2nd, 1800, access to a lifetime pension. Although her husband's same relatives that had contested the will laid claim to that too, they did not like her. Uh, so she only got part of it.
0: But for 23 years, she was publishing her own newspaper in Washington, D.C. And between the Paul Pry and the Huntress, she published more than 1,200 issues with the help of her friends Sally Stack, and those two orphans who were helping both with deliveries and errands. And to quote Sarah Harvey Porter, writing for the Historical Society of Washington, D.C. in 1907, quote, from the first number of Paul Pry to the last issue of The Huntress almost a quarter of a century afterward, there was not a single political battle fought in Washington about, Roy- about which Anne Royal did not have, or rather fling, her say. She hit, too, with uncommon frequency and always near the bullseye. Her pages contain much to offend a critical literary taste, much that her, admir- her admirers could wish had never been printed, But, liked or disliked, her bitterest enemies must admit that her editorial and other utterances never lacked point.
2: Royal died just a couple of months after publishing her last issue of The Huntress on October 1st, 1854, at the age of 85. She was virtually penniless, having barely sustained herself with these newspapers. She was buried in Congressional Cemetery in an unmarked grave, and then a stone was erected by Masons in 1911, which read... Anne Royal, pioneer woman journalist, 1769 to 1854, pray that the union of these states may be eternal, erected in appreciative recognition by a few men from Philadelphia and Washington, May 12, 1911.
0: And Royal's reputation really endured for a long time after her death. Almost 40 years later, on February 22, 1891, the Washington Post ran an article about her, under the following headline, which is long, so you're going to think it's done, and I'm going to keep going. Um, she was a holy terror. Her pen was as venomous as a rattlesnake's fangs. Former Washington editress, how Anne Royal made life a burden to the public men of her day. Please let me have a headline that good after I die. please, 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 please. Please! Please! Uh, Another 50 years after that, President Harry S. Truman, who loved to tell that false skinny-dipping story, called her a shrew of a newspaper woman.
2: Yeah, most of the write-ups about Anne Royal today focus on one of three things. There's that apocryphal story about John Quincy Adams, the trial for being a scold, and the extremely opinionated and strident political reporting that was dedicated to exposing corruption and hypocrisy that she did. For almost 25 years. But there's one more thing that's really important to note about her and that's that although she was mostly able to support herself through writing and reporting, often she really had very little, especially when she was running her own newspapers. People described her as shabby because she only had that one dress, but she was constantly doing everything that she could for people
0: who had less than she did. She donated as much money as she possibly could to charitable causes rather than buying more dresses. Uh, She visited the sick and imprisoned. She took so-called fallen women into her home because she was really mindful of the fact that that could have been her in that exact same position. And one of the reasons that she hated political and religious corruption so very deeply was that it was so often taking funds away from people who really desperately needed it.
2: It's also tricky to try to sum up royals, very complicated and sometimes contradictory opinions. So to quote Sarah Harvey Porter again, here's a rundown. Quote, entire separation of church and state in spirit and letter, exposure and punishment of corrupt officials, sound money, public schools in all parts of the country free from sectarian bias or control, masonry, justice to the Indians, liberal immigration laws, transportation of mails on Sunday, internal improvements, territorial expansion, liberal appropriations for scientific investigation, equal and just tariff laws, no nullification, states' rights in regards to the slavery question, She had a mostly good list until that point, except for maybe the territorial expansion part, which also had problems. But anyway, uh, betterment of conditions of wage earners, free thought, free speech, and a free press, and then my favorite, good works instead of long prayers.
0: On May 22, 1990, the Society of Professional Journalists unveiled a plaque to be hung in the Senate Daily Press Gallery, and it reads, "Ann N. Royal, who published newspapers from 1831 to 1854 in Washington, D.C., a fearless champion of freedom of the press, Anne Royal walked the halls of the Capitol gathering firsthand reports on legislation and politics. She bears the distinction of being the first woman to cover the US Congress. She advocated the separation of church and state and the preservation of the union, making a notable contribution to political journalism.
2: And that is Anne Royal. Before we close out today's show, we have a bunch of thank yous. First, thanks to the staff at all of our venues. Across the board, everyone in every city was great to work with. Thanks to our marketing staff and our Atlanta office for handling a lot of the wrangling with the venues and with our booking agent, and to our colleague, Tamika, who handled making most of our travel arrangements for us. And then I want to thank Holly. Holly, you did. All the legwork on figuring out where we should stay. And I just <laughs> copied off your paper.
0: It's just fine by me. I love to pick a hotel. Thank you for doing all of the research for this episode. Uh, We also need to thank everyone who came out to the show, especially the many people who stayed behind to talk to us afterward. In particular, thanks to Colleen, who brought us some chocolates and some handmade cowls, and Maria, who brought us some goodies from historic St. Mary's City, and Sophie, who brought us some really beautiful art. And if you brought us a treat and we haven't mentioned you, we sincerely apologize. That week got really blurry for a little while, to the point that sometimes I did not know what airport I was in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that happened to me also,
2: and I just remembered that the, we uh, somebody uh, brought us some peanut butter because they did a peanut butter taste test, yes. and we had the peanut butter episode. That was in Raleigh, and I, I didn't write down that person's name. I also want to give a special thank you to Corrine for dashing up onto the stage during our last show in Washington, D.C. with some cough drops when the cold that I had started fighting off in Somerville finally caught up with me. And I could
0: not stop coughing on stage. And lastly, massive thanks to headcount.org. Uh, they were on site to register people to vote at most of the shows on this tour. They will also be on our West Coast tour very exciting and I feel like it's so important that they are there and I really appreciate the effort of all of those volunteers.
2: And our next tour is coming up in October. We will be in Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon and Los Angeles and San Francisco, California. You can find more information and links to buy tickets at mistinhistory.com slash tour. We are hopeful that we'll be able to have some more stops in other cities on other tours in the future. Uh, and since that was kind of a long episode and we had a lot of thank yous, We have no listener mail today, just the blanket thank you again to everyone.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile
0: for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the
1: cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready,
0: curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves, and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die! Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.